How can you achieve and maintain business growth? Harvard Business School Executive Education is now accepting applications for a new program, Driving Profitable Growth. Taking place in Boston from October 25th through the 28th, this program focuses on business expansion and organizational growth strategies that can lead your company into the future. Learn more about this three-day program for senior leaders by visiting hbs.me growth. That's hbs.me growth. Welcome back to Locked On Bucks presented by Brewhoop.com. I'm Frank Madden. And this week, a reminder, we're sponsored by SeatGeek. Be sure to download the SeatGeek app to get great deals on tickets to sporting events and concerts. And be sure to add our promo code L-O-B-U-C-K-S. That's for Locked On Bucks, L-O-B-U-C-K-S, and get a $20 rebate on your first purchase. Now, today we're going to jump right back into part two of our conversation with our good friend Ian Levy, who's this NBA senior editor at Fanside and the editor-in-chief of the Hardwood Paroxysm Basketball Network. Check out all of his awesome work there. And if you missed part one, be sure to check that out on our feed. We talked a bit about point guard Giannis, point forward Giannis, point center Giannis. And in part two, we'll talk a bit more about how we think the East might shake out next season, as well as in the long term, looking a bit at who the Bucks' long-term arrivals for Eastern supremacy might be. We'll talk also a bit about NBA defense, Jason Kidd and his coaching, and we look at the analytics of stretching the floor, specifically how Mirza Toledovic may add more value than you might think. So enjoy the pod, and we'll jump right back in. I want to maybe get into the long-term view of the East in a, in a minute, but um, we talked a little bit about the Bucks now, and we mentioned a little bit um, some of the other teams. You mentioned some of the teams that, that might drop out, some of the teams that uh, are going to be maybe with the Bucks competing to get into the playoffs. Um, but now that we're sort of at the end of the summer, um, you know, I guess you're kind of hinted to uh, hinted at it before, but um, which teams would you kind of highlight in saying like these teams, you know, are really primed to make a big leap up or a big leap down, and um, and you know, we can think about in terms as well in terms of obviously sort of like the tiers, right? I mean, you got kind of Cleveland, and then it's yeah, differing opinions, but um, but it kind of <laughs> well, well, you know, I don't know. How would you think about sort of that stratification of the East and and who's kind of moving up and who's moving down? I think Cleveland's obviously sort of on their own level. I think probably Toronto and Boston are right behind them. Um, and then after that, it's sort of a muddle, Charlotte, Indiana, Detroit. Um, like I said, I, I'm a little suspicious of Atlanta. I think they're going to miss Horford a lot. I think um, I think their, their rookies, Torian Prince, is not going to be as ready as people think he's going to be this year. Um, and I'm, I'm not – uh, I'm still not sure about uh, Schroeder, um, so I think they maybe take a step back. Um, so I, I think it'll probably come down to Cleveland, Toronto, Boston um, at the top, and everybody else is gonna is gonna sort of duke it out. Um, I'm the Pacers are the team I follow the most closely, and I'm uh, as as big a, a pessimist as you'll find about the Pacers summer. I thought it was really uh, <laughs> short sighted and uh, I don't know, just uh, goals and uh, goals and actions like not lining up at all. Talk about that a bit more. Cause so, and again, and I, so it's kind of the, the reverse here. So I'm an outsider to the Pacers. Um, you know, you've, you've team Pacers, are the team that you've always followed most closely. <laughs> Hence, we asked you about Mike Dunleavy five years ago. Um, <laughs> but it's sort of, when you look at that summer, it was, it was such a fascinating one. Cause obviously, um, I, I think the first, I mean, I think the first big move was getting rid of Vogel, I want to say. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that sort of set a really interesting, 
you know, start to everything because I know uh, Eric is a is a big Frank Vogel fan. Uh, I'm a Frank Vogel fan. Maybe not as big as as Eric. Well, that I've wouldn't termed, be possible, Frank. <laughs> yeah, I've I've termed Eric a, a Vogel lever, um, and <laughs> I I just find it fascinating because I I mean I don't know I mean I'm not sure what your expectations are of of Nate McMillan, but it just seemed like such a fascinating juxtaposition of on the one hand you know this idea of larry bird theoretically wants to you know had wanted to going back to last summer play smaller and faster and then you know to get rid of frank vogel and bring in and obviously frank vogel had issues you know building a good offense but uh to bring in nate mcmillan who um you know maybe and i'm trying to remember i think their offenses were 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 their offenses pretty good when, during his previous coaching since? I don't know. I just remember they were very <laughs> slow and methodical. <laughs> yeah, his his teams in Portland were really good uh, offensively. They were you know top five, top ten uh, almost every season. Uh, but yeah, that was that was Brandon Roy, uh, you know, at his apex, sort of pounding the ball and orchestrating. Um, so their pace was always really really slow. Um, so yeah, there was all these things like I, I feel like Vogel took the heat for some stuff that was not his fault. You know, uh, they they wanted to play Paul George at the four, and Paul George said he wasn't going to play at the four, and so all of a sudden, you know, power forward is is Lavoy Allen or C.J. Miles or uh, um, you know or Solomon Hill, and you know, frankly, I thought he did an, an admirable job, uh, sort of uh, pushing their style more towards a, an up tempo offense, given the pieces that he had. I mean, essentially had one year to go from uh, you know defensive juggernaut to you know pace and space, and uh, I thought he made a lot of progress in one year. But um, yeah, I mean, the moves. Uh, I think the Pacers are going to really miss George Hill. I think you know. Um, Teague is obviously much better out of the pick and roll, a much better shot creator. He's a good three point shooter too. Although it remains to be seen how he how he works as a as a catch and shoot uh, threat, or maybe he he won't be spotting up much this year. But I think George Hill could do a lot of the things that uh, that Teague could do. He just the Pacers didn't let him do that the past couple of years. You know he he had a career year when Paul George was injured, and then uh, they sent him back to stand in the corner while Monte Ellis ran pick and rolls last year. Um, and then I'll think they'll miss George Hill's defense a lot. And then I think they'll really miss Jan Mahinmi. Um, he was fantastic last year, uh, huge defensive presence, uh, and really blossomed uh, as a roll man, diving to the rim and, uh, you know, catching the ball in a short roll and, and making a quick dribble, making a decision, either a pass out to the corner or, you know, a move for a bucket. Um, so I think he'll help the Wizards a lot. And uh, I think, um, you know, I'm, I love Miles Turner. I'm excited about him. But I think in the short term, uh, you know, just plugging Miles Turner in for Jan Mahinmi is is uh, a negative. Uh, you know, is a negative move for right now. It's going to make the team worse. So um, I think they'll. Uh, I think they'll maybe be as good as they were last year, but um, you know, I think they're m- sort of moving in a confusing direction. Are any other teams? So, so you're not necessarily bullish on uh, on the Pacers offseason. Any teams that you looked at and and thought were? Um, I'm thinking of maybe one other team that had very. I feel like the the magic might also come and go into that kind of like a lot of activity and a lot of confusion. Um, so I don't know if you had any thoughts on them or or, or any other teams that maybe were confusing, outright bad, or on the flip side were you know had had maybe under the radar really good off seasons. Uh, I think the Magic are weird, too. The stuff about playing Aaron Gordon at the three, um, it fits into... 
I think it fits into a similar thing with the Giannis discussion. It's like Gordon's a guy similar to Giannis. He maybe doesn't have sort of the uh, the developed skill set right now, but he's one of those guys who, from his physical profile, he could essentially be anything. And and saying, all right, we're going to make him into a ball handling wing. It seems like it doesn't play to his strengths now, and it really you know sort of sets some limitations if they're like that's how we're going to use him this year. Um, you know, it it doesn't really let him lean into you know what's natural and and um what he already does well which i think uh which i think is an important thing for a young player to to be able to sort of have some success by by sort of whatever comes natural to them to sort of have something something like that to rely on and build out from um so yeah, I'm not I'm not quite sure about them. I, I suppose it depends on how that works out for Gordon and and how it works for Hazonia. Um, I think the Hornets, uh, although they'll probably miss Jeremy Lin, I think they may be a little bit better next year. Just um, having another year in that system, uh, I think getting Kid Gilchrist back is going to be really great for them. Although it, it remains to be seen how that wing rotation shakes out. It's supposedly it's going to be uh, Batum and Kid Gilchrist and Marvin Williams all starting together, and uh, on paper that looks good. But they'll they'll have some things to sort out. Um, and then I I, uh, I like them moving Al Jefferson. Unfortunately, he ended up with the Pacers, but uh, I, I think uh, more more space for Cody Zeller and Frank Kaminsky uh, sort of uh, lets them lets them go with this style they've been working on. Uh, so I think they'll be a little bit better. Um, and then I think you know uh, Boston and Toronto were sort of right there last year, and um, I think they uh, they both got a little bit better this summer too. So you're not buying the Knicks as the the league's third super, super team? Is super that? team? No, I think they're going to have a tough year. I think, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, even in a perfect world where, like, even in a perfect world where Rose plays 75 games and Noah plays 75 games, um, I still just I'm, I'm I'm not sure how it all fits together. Um, I think uh, Chris Stapp's, um uh, I think he maybe has a little bit of a down year sort of relative to people's expectations. He was, um, he was so good early last season and he really tailed off as the season went on. Um, you can sort of see it if you chart out his, his progress over the course of the year, he's, he really hit the wall in the middle of the year and really tailed off. Um, and I think some of that was physical and some of that was sort of people figuring him out a little bit more. So, um, yeah, I'm not buying the, the Knicks as, as Warriors challengers. I feel like the, I don't know, Eric, where you come out of the Knicks, but I, I look at the Knicks and I just wonder, like, could they be kind of like what the Bulls were and which would make sense because they have two Bulls, two, two of the more prominent ex-Bulls <laughs> recent years. But could they, you know, scrap together like a 42 in season where like everybody just hates everything about it? Um, and, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess you could argue if the, you know, if, if the Knicks got 42 wins this season, especially coming off, you know, the last couple seasons that, that fans would be pretty thrilled with that um, versus the Bulls who obviously have had these kind of higher expectations and, you know, kind of slanting down towards low 40s was uh, was obviously a much uh, much less appreciated uh, place to be. Um, but for some reason, like, I feel like they could be okay um, to decent but it's just kind of like what you you know, kind of like I guess bigger picture. It's like, well, what are, what are you like trying to actually accomplish with that mix of guys? Because obviously, it's like 
uh, you've got some good players, but you know you're obviously not trying to build the you know 2011 East All Star team, right? It's it's uh, it's uh, that was back. You know that we're not all trying to go back to the days of uh, Ian's first podcast with uh, with us. So, um, but I don't know, Eric. You, I mean, I'm trying to remember. I don't know if we've really talked about the Knicks much. No, I don't really think so. And I was just going to say, if they win 42 games, it's going to be insufferable because. It's going to be it's going to be about the return of basketball in New York and how great the Knicks are and are they a contender in the East because obviously that's going to be something that has to be pushed because the biggest market in the world has a basketball team. Uh god, that would be just insufferable. Oh, that'd be terrible. Yeah, I don't, I don't think they're very gold good. medal mellow. I'm I'm fascinated how the gold medal uh, you know, super patriot uh, Carmelo Anthony narrative, uh, which you know we're recording this on Sunday night, just after the U.S. has won uh, the gold medal, and uh, Melo had uh, had a great post game speech, and obviously now three gold medals for Carmelo. I'm I'm kind of curious if the the narrative around Carmelo from sort of I don't know. I mean, you guys know how Carmelo. You know, I mean, the, 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 he's has such a weird narrative because obviously he took the money and he stayed in New York and he has a no trade clause, and it just sort of seems like he's kind of just like doomed to spend his, you know, kind of like you know, uh, work out the rest of his days in New York, not winning really anything of significance. Um, but I am kind of curious if they, if they start winning some games, there might be sort of that like feel good Carmelo loves America. And now he's winning some NBA basketball games narrative that that might get people uh, feeling positive about Carmelo. I feel like he's just owning it now. Like, he's like, you know what? I'm never going to win a wing. Like, let me do all this other stuff that's cool. Like, and you know what? This is going to be my legacy. Like, I'm down with it. I'm not going to get a ring, but I'm going to have a whole bunch of money, and people are going to think I'm cool because I'm doing awesome stuff. And, and, yeah, like, why not? Go for it. That's a good life. And, and he's going to wear big hats, and, you know, that's just, like, how it's going to go. <laughs> so I guess we, we could highlight the Knicks as a team that that is not uh, building for, for the long term. But um, one question that just kind of came to me as we were talking, uh, and it's an interesting one, you know, and I've gotten asked this when I've been, um, had to do interviews with, with kind of people, and, and they frequently ask me, like, okay, so how far are the Bucks away from, um, you know, being, uh, oftentimes people ask about, like, a top four, you know, a, a home, home, uh, home, adva- home court advantage the playoffs in the first round type team in the east right which isn't you know that's not title contending level but it's okay yeah you're on the right direction level um and my guess has always been like you're at least two years away um but i think you brought up a good point Ian, which is that you know you look at Giannis, and the same goes for jabari since they're the same age and you know chris middleton's i think turning 25 here um you know the kind of like practical upside of this team and you know if you believe in thon maker you can obviously say well he's you know years away from from you know being a uh whatever he might be kind of in, in a peak sense um but realistically the the peak of this team is you know four five six or more years away if if you assume that you know this core kind of works and 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 you try to keep it together um I, I don't know, and, and again, I'm not kind of baiting you with this, Ian, because I want you to say that the Bucks are inevitably going to be a championship team because I don't think there's anything inevitable about any of that. Um, but if you start, I mean, let's start with the East. I mean, are there other teams, you know, or, or how would you kind of put the Bucks into the mix when you think, you know, not just next year, not just the year after, but three, four, five years down the road? Obviously, that opens up for tons of uncertainty. Um, but when you look kind of just at like where teams are now and the assets they have, um, players they have, but also obviously teams like Boston and, and Philadelphia have a lot of future draft assets as well. I mean, you know, who do you look at now and say like, okay, those are teams that, you know, if I was buying stock, you know, for a few years from now, those are the teams I'd be really interested in, in, in buying into. 
I think the Bucks are right there. Um, and I think, you know, some of that this year is, you know, growth uh, or, or um, you know, growth maybe not just wins and losses and not just competing for the eight seed, but it seems like it's sort of in, in sorting out an identity and sorting out how they're going to play and sort of um, – you know, maybe not make, maybe not Thon Maker this year, but you know, uh, how do Giannis and and Jabari fit together? If if we assume those are going to be the guys for the next five years, and everybody else is is maybe going to be in and out, how do they work together? Um, and then, uh, yeah, Maker too. Um, if I was looking at other teams in the East, I, <laughs> maybe a, a trite answer or an answer that gets me booed out of the room, but I think the Seventy Sixers are uh, are on the right path. I think they have been on the right path for the for the last three years. Losses notwithstanding, um, I think that this was the uh, the payoff for the process was this summer. Um, not just Simmons, but the the rest of their draft class um, was was phenomenal, and I think they've uh, they've they've got. Uh, they've got they're just I think they're loaded and uh, it's going to be raw and messy and they'll probably you know maybe struggle to win 20 games again this year but um, three four or five years down the road I think they're going to be set up to be one of the better teams in the east Um, not just with the the players they have but how those players sort of allow them maybe to make moves attract a free agent pull off a big trade something like that Um, Maybe the Celtics too. You know, they still have a lot of youth. Um, they haven't found that that franchise changing player uh, necessarily, or, or at least the guys they've been looking for. But um, you know, they still have a lot of young talent. And uh, uh, thanks to the <laughs> thanks to the Brooklyn Nets, they still have a couple more nice draft picks coming up. I guess uh, one thing that I've kind of been fascinated by this season and off season and really just with Bucks coverage in general is it's fun to say, well, they're going to be great in four to five years. And that's a warm, comforting feeling to have as a Bucks fan, just to have that in your back pocket. Like, okay, they're going to be good in X years. And that, that's a good thing to say. And it feels good. And it continues to give you hope. But I'm curious, when do you think Bucks fans can start expecting things out of players? Like, I, I, th- like, I think we're getting to a point where Giannis – might be an all-star next year like he's going to be at least in the conversation and these guys are getting better so when when do you think it would be fair for bucks fans to expect say a 500 season like is that a fair expectation of that of this team this season that certainly seems like a reasonable goal this season um and again like i'm maybe a little more um process not referring to the 76ers but i'm a little more maybe like process oriented than everybody like uh, for me it's it's less about wins than sort of about how things are working and and what the um yeah what the what the systems look like do the systems look promising do people know what their roles are do things match do things make sense you know not to tie back to the pacers but you know uh if this team says they want to play a certain way, does it seem like they are moving in that direction, making moves that make sense, making moves on the floor that are sort of building towards that? But it seems like a, a fifty um, uh, a five hundred season is is reasonable as a goal this year. Um, and you know maybe you catch lightning in a bottle and you're fighting for one of the top four seeds in the Eastern Conference. But um, it, it's hard to uh, I feel like it's hard to set. It's hard to set uh, specific goals um, 
more than a year out. You know, if we if we say 500 and, and fighting for a playoff spot is a reasonable goal this year, it's hard to say what the goal is for next year mm-hmm. because, you know, if they catch lightning in a bottle and they're a top four seed, you know, then maybe they're shooting to get into that top tier with Cleveland the year after or, you know, uh, you know, say horrible luck strikes and you, you know, you guys are battling injuries all year and, you know, struggling to, to get to 35 wins, then, you know, it's sort of resets everything and you're looking at a different set of goals. But, um, you know, I think you're, you guys are certainly in a place where you can start, uh, start pointing to some measurables and say, you know, this is working or this is not. And, and, you know, we, we should be moving in, uh, we should be making, you know, concrete progress. It should be more than just sort of good feelings and, you know, happy, smiley marketing campaigns. Um, one thing there you mentioned was, are things making sense? Does it look like they're doing the right things? Are the right systems in place? And obviously the Bucks go from second in defense uh, two years ago to bad last year. Um, <laughs> so I'm curious, again, I, I these are the kind of questions that always interest me from someone that views the team from afar. What do you think of Jason Kidd's coaching? Um, obviously, again, you, you're not watching every second of every Bucks game and you're not going to tell me about his rotations or anything like that, but I guess what is your perspective on Jason Kidd as a coach? Um, I don't know. I think he's probably in the group of guys who, uh, you know, maybe doesn't hurt his team, but maybe doesn't add a whole lot. Um, I guess I would say I fall in that camp where I think there's, you know, a handful of coaches who really make a difference and everybody else is sort of lumped together in the middle. Um, I think, my sense from the outside is that he's probably like that his value is probably more in how he connects to players and as a motivator than maybe it is in sort of as an X's and O's tactician, um, you know, adjusting strategies on the fly kind of guy. Um, and I think there's, you know, there's certainly value in that. You know, if I think about the top uh, top handful of coaches in the league or the people I think are really great, um, they don't necessarily all do the same things well. Just like you'd think about a, a you know a star player, there's people who score, there's people who defend. Um, you know, Popovich is maybe the whole the whole package, and uh, I think Rick Carlisle is is sort of a, an expert tactician and and manager of lineups and sort of uh, you know seeing how the pieces fit together. And then there's you know somebody like Doc Rivers who maybe uh, is not as great with rotations, not as great with in game adjustments and stuff like that. But um, you know, uh, motivating players, team unity, getting people to believe and play with a certain attitude. Um, you know, he he gets that out of his players, and there's a lot of value in that too um so i guess maybe i would put put kid more sort of in that camp where it's uh it's about uh motivation and effort and sort of uh you know uh connecting with guys on a on a more of a psychological level than than tactics and strategy and things like that yeah it's sort of the more the john calipari (laughs) (laughs) there you go (laughs) um but it's an interesting question because obviously you know two years ago they come in they they bring in a kind of a new defensive scheme and um you know it kind of catches i think a lot of people off guard and and they were able to execute it um i don't know i mean i'd I'd just be curious i mean you, you obviously look a lot at at sort of the analytics side of things and and you watch tons and tons of basketball and you know you study how teams improve or or in some cases get worse obviously um 
I mean, on the defensive end, I think there's often this sort of view that defense is, you know, well, it's just effort, you know, and you just get a bunch of guys and, you know, you get, uh, you know, you get a good defensive assistant who's got some good scheme or whatever. And then you get guys buying in and you get that right mix of, you know, some defensive talent and, you know, veterans, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then it can work out. And I, I don't know. I mean, I think if you're a Bucks fan, you're kind of like in some level, like the, the last two years, and there's obviously some some good reasons for why they might have dropped off last year, losing Zaza and Jared Dudley, adding, you know, Jamari Parker, Greg Monroe to the mix. Um, but I don't know. I kind of when you think about like what teams can do to be good defensively, I mean, how much year-to-year variance do you think is kind of just random or or how much do you think it is that, you know, in the summer you can really kind of, you know, go to work and, and handpick guys and say, okay, we're going to add, you know, Delvadova and um, we're going to try to, you know, bring back, you know, an athletic guy in the middle like Plumley in addition to having Henson and, you know, obviously they were trying to move Greg Monroe. I mean, how much do you think uh, secret sauce is there into all this and, and how much of it is kind of like, well, you just, you know, you just need better defensive players? <laughs> And then uh, a little bit of both, which is a cop-out, I guess. But um, I think when you're building a system, it doesn't necessarily need you, – you don't necessarily need a roster full of top-notch defensive guys, but you have to have uh, – you have to have a system in mind and there has to be an elite defensive player or two who sort of drives that system. Um, Like thinking about the Pacers, Paul George is a phenomenal defensive player, but that system worked because of Roy Hibbert in the middle. Um, And you, I mean, you can sort of see it from both sides. Uh, Remove Hibbert from that system, and he's kind of not – it doesn't look nearly as good defensively, forgetting about his atrocious offense. He doesn't look like this all-world rim protector anymore outside of the Pacers system. And those really well-schooled wings who were long and knew knew their roles and sort of executed really well. And then the Pacers system, you know, performed admirably the past couple of years, but it didn't look uh, it didn't look the same with Jan Mahinmi in the middle, as good as Mahinmi played last year. Um, and so I think it's it's that uh, uh, it's both pieces. So looking at the Bucks roster, you know, it's Middleton and, and Giannis and and Henson are, are maybe their elite defensive players, and Delavadova is is less of a um it seems like he's just sort of a his values of willingness to run through brick walls and that sort of thing um and Ir- so irritant figuring, yeah the parasite yeah. slash irritant yeah so it's figuring out like what what are they going to do with with henson and Giannis and middleton to to make that elite and and um you know middleton's been great um but i don't know that he's a guy who who sort of drives a defensive system by himself you know he's he's a guy who um Seems like to me he can handle some of the best, you know, uh, some of the best perimeter scores in the league. That he can sort of handle that as a one-on-one assignment, but he doesn't. Um he doesn't cry out for a specific system. It's not like, oh, if we want to get the most out of Middleton, we have to, you know, sort of play a conservative scheme, or you know, we have to play a hyper aggressive scheme. And so, um, it, it, there's enough. Uh, there's enough disparate parts there to make some challenges with any system. There's enough sort of bad defenders or guys with limitations in either size or quickness or, you know, effort to, to sort of make anything a challenge, but figuring out like what, what, what's going to work best to, to get the most defensively out of Henson and, and Giannis and, and Middleton. And then everybody else, you know, just sort of does the best they can plugged in around that. I guess now that we're talking about coaching a little bit, 
Uh, you mentioned something when you're talking about uh, Frank Vogel about how you thought he did in let's say an admirable jo- admirable job trying to get some pace and space stuff into an offense in just one year, and I think that's what most Buck fan- Bucks fans want to see out of their offense. They want to see some more uh, spacing concepts used, some more three shot. They want to see a more let's say modern offense. Um, <laughs> What were what were some of those things you thought Vogel did, and what is what are some things that the Bucks could possibly do to try to foster an environment like that? I mean, some of it was just pushing the ball more. The Pacers um, uh, were very deliberate, you know, in the in the in their whatever their defensive days or in their intense defensive area. They were very deliberate about bringing the ball up slowly and trying to sort of milk those possessions as much as possible to to lean into their their defensive expertise. And so, a lot of it was just being willing to get out and run and uh, you know attack an early offense. Um, and uh, so maybe there's some of that, but it seems like the Bucks, uh, it seems like that's not a problem that the Bucks are, are working with. Uh, I think the challenges for Milwaukee are going to be more about, uh, more rotational. Um, you know, not necessarily that they're running archaic systems, but that the guys that they have sort of limit what they can do in them. I, I pulled up a, a couple numbers, a couple things they had written recently, but, uh, so Teletovic, uh, um, of players classified as a forward or center by basketball reference. He led the league last year in three point attempts per hundred possessions. Um, and so his, uh, his, uh, his the threat of having him on the floor is going to make an enormous difference for them, regardless of how they use him and, and what the sets are that they are running. Mm-hmm. Just having him stationed behind the three point line, um, not to to go too deep into the numbers, but there's a, a some research about the effects of spacing, and the research uses uh, five. Uh, three-point attempts per 100 possessions as sort of a, a, a pivot point for a player who's a floor spacer or not. Um, and the the pivot point is having four shooters on the floor. So if you have four guys in a lineup who shoot more than five three-point attempts per 100 possessions, that's where you see the benefit of spacing. That's where you get like added offensive value on top of whatever the, the aggregate skill of the players is. So that really only works if you have a power forward or a center who's shooting three pointers. And so for the first time, uh, you know, in a while, the Bucks are going to have that guy and, and Teletovic is one of the best. Um, the other number that I pulled up was the Bucks ranked third, the Bucks ranked 26th last year in total three pointers made by big men um they had a total of 33 pointers all year made by players um classified as power forwards or centers and uh so you know they were really um i think they were really hampered by personnel as much as anything else yeah so i guess the question uh ian is since uh mirrors the average 13 three pointers per 100 possessions does that mean he can count as like two and a half of those spacers <laughs> by himself because <laughs> yeah, they may go. they may they may need him to and i think that's a really good point because i think bucks fans especially always sort of lumped um ursan Lyasova in with uh, ryan anderson because they both kind of uh, had their breakouts around the same time and were both sort of considered oh they're like you know stretch fours but people I don't think realized that that Ursan didn't take very many threes actually, and especially compared to a guy like like uh, Ryan Anderson, and certainly Toledovich is much more in the Ryan Anderson style of just 
unconscious, you know, give him an inch. He's he's gunning from the outside. He's, he's putting up three pointers, whereas Ursan is much more of a, you know, if I'm wide open, I'm taking a three. Otherwise, I'm, you know, pump faking, dribbling in, then taking a step back with my foot on the line type type guy. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyways, I, have, so- I have the numbers open. So Ilyasova took six point nine three point attempts for hundred possessions last year. So about half as much as as Teletovic. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to watch. Um, anyway, we've taken up probably twice as much of Ian's time as we thought we would. Um, so, Ian, thank you so much. I'll uh, I'll send you an invite for uh, maybe a 2020 podcast here uh, coming up. We'll, we'll try to move it to, to every four years. How does that sound? <laughs> Sounds great. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, we'll definitely try to get Ian back uh, sooner than that. Uh, again, uh, Ian Levy. Uh, if you like us, you probably know all about Ian. But again, um, senior editor uh, of uh, over at, at Fan sided on the nba side editor-in-chief of hardwood paroxysm basketball network and uh if uh if you are out there looking for smart basketball uh odds are you've already found ian up to this point but be sure to uh to give him a look and i guess uh and lots hickory of gifts ian has yes. lots and lots of gifts <laughs> yes. and your your twitter handle is that still hickory high it is it okay is. so be sure to give uh give ian a follow there so anyway thank you so much for for joining us ian and uh thanks for listening also uh thanks very much to our sponsor uh seat geek be sure to download the app and of course use that promo code l-o-b-u-c-k-s l-o-bucks insert that get a 20 dollars rebate on your first purchase from seat geek uh a great app and i'm i'm feel like uh, i'm probably preaching the choir but uh i've used it and uh it's definitely a, a great way to, to to get tickets for any concert or sporting event and uh obviously now you can get 20 bucks off so what's what's better than that anyway thanks so much for eric name i'm frank madden and we'll talk to you again very soon